0: Before uh, being the host and executive producer, personally speaking, I had the great opportunity to work at The Christophers, an organization based in New York City that promotes the notion that it's better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. As director of The Christophers, I had the opportunity to interview many wonderful guests. I wanted to share one with you in particular, Uh, even though it's uh, many years old, it's still relevant because he was a terrific guest. Ben Stein, you know him as a TV host, as a comedian, as a writer, as a political commentator, gave one of the best interviews I've had the privilege to be a part of. And I thought we'd share with our personally speaking listeners around the world an interview with the great writer, the great speaker, the great television personality, the great actor, Ben Stein. Here's Ben Stein on Christopher Close-Up.
1: questions I'm going to put to Ben Stein are not for Ben Stein's money and they're not for Jim Lasanti's money. They're just for fun. Ben here. My wonderful staff at the Christophers... Okay. Ask I have to have, to have a these. long time. Here we go. go. At the end of the Cold War, about ten years ago, what was the last country in Eastern Europe to abandon rigid Communist Party rule? Romania. Answer? Albania. Oh. Okay. Here we go. Okay. The deepest point under the sea, over eleven thousand meters or thirty-six thousand feet below sea level, is located in the Western Pacific Ocean, and is Marianna's known as the Marianas Trench. You got it, you got it, folks. <laughs> Each of these events occurred in years ending with the digit two. Name the year. Oh, that's too hard. Marilyn Monroe died. Sixty-two. Well, I remember <laughs> it right. very well. I remember. Soviet that. Russia was renamed the USSR. That must have been twenty-two. Right. Arizona and New Mexico became the 47th 12, and 48th. 1912. You got all three right. <laughs> and last but not least, how long does it take for the moon to orbit the Earth? The moon orbits the Earth in roughly one month. 27 to 28 days. Ben Stein. I'm your host, Monsignor Jim Lasanti, delighted by the presence of my guest, it was Ben Stein. Ben Stein many of you know because of his very successful television career. Hello, I'm Ben Stein.
2: My brain is a miraculous instrument. It contains the information I use to protect my money. $5,000. I'll put it up, but I won't give it up without a fight. But if you're smart enough, quick enough, and lucky enough, you can win Ben Stein's money.
1: I'd like to begin, first of all, by welcoming Ben and asking him to speak about his primary uh, responsibility in life, which is he is a daddy and he is a spouse. Let's talk a little bit about fatherhood. What does it mean for you, Ben?
2: Well, my son is a huge, huge factor in my life. I would say he's everything in my life, but then uh, my wife would be mad if (laughs) I said that. But he's enormously important to me. He's 13 years old. I believe him to be the world's laziest human being. There's no possible way to gauge how lazy he is uh, unless you're his father and see him just take his socks off while he's having a snack after school and then just leave them in the dining room or see him just, uh, as he's walking across the room, just take his shirt and his trousers off and just drop them on the floor even though the clothes hamper is about eight inches away. Uh, But he's very, very, very sweet and I love him very, very much and he he really is everything to me. He's an angel. What
1: went into the decision to take the risky route of adoption?
2: Well, we had been trying to have children in the normal way for, a, or I shouldn't say normal way, but the usual way for, for many years. It didn't work. We tried all kinds of medical treatments. It didn't work. So uh, we wanted to have a child. I mean, we had we'd had many dogs, and we liked having dogs. <laughs> we felt we had been pretty good parents to the dogs. So we felt we'd be pretty good parents. We wanted, uh, I was at a restaurant one day, and I saw grandparents with their children and grandchildren. I thought, I don't want this to be me I saw kids riding down the street on their bicycles. I said, I don't want it to be me who's, who's the one looking on without mm-hmm. the children and grandchildren. I, I uh, saw children riding down the street on their bicycles. I thought, I want one of those kids to be mine someday. And uh, I, I think we made the right decision. He's a little angel. I have no clue how anyone as lazy as he is is ever going to have to earn a living. But <laughs> is ever going to be able to, rather, able to earn a living. But maybe he won't have to. One never knows.
1: Ben, did you get any reaction from folks by way of saying that because when you adopted, you weren't a kid, that maybe you were adopting too late? Very few people said
2: we were too old. Uh, one or two uh, teased us about it, but that hasn't really been a problem. I mean, my son uh, refers to me and uh, my wife as geezers, but, uh, <laughs> and uh, of course, me, he's always punching in the stomach because I'm overweight, and he calls me the Pillsbury doughboy. <laughs> But uh, it, has, it hasn't <laughs> been a problem, really, so far. I mean, I do regret that in the normal course of events, unless I have some miracle of immortality on Earth, I won't get to see him be very old, but uh, that breaks my heart. But uh, I just love him so much every minute that all of that is sort of washed away. I, the other night, my wife and I were watching a documentary about World War II, and there are these horribly sad pictures of my fellow Jews being murdered. And then from his room, we heard him playing the harmonica. He had awakened, and just to make sure we knew he was around, he was playing the harmonica. And I thought, oh, how sweet, this little angel playing the harmonica. And I thought, the sound
1: of Tommy playing the harmonica at midnight is the sweetest sound anyone could hear. What's the impact, been when you've been used to being just two and the family expands to three? How did it impact on family life for you and your wife? It was a gigantic strain
2: at first, gigantic. Um, Not so much because of Tommy, because Tommy uh, was very small and didn't really do much. But we had a nanny, we had a live-in maid, and I was suddenly like the fifth wheel, and I was just uh, an unimportant part of the machinery of the household. And it made me feel pretty angry. We had a house out at the beach, and I started spending a great deal more time out at the beach, which was a mistake. I should have just rolled with the punch and just admitted that for a long time he's going to be number one. And... uh, and, and it didn't, it took a while, it took a few years, but now we've all got a good idea of what our places are. Each of us thinks we're the most important. <laughs> so that's uh, how it works. But it, it's a strain, it's definitely a strain. I'd say uh, uh, I was very, very lucky that I had a program, if I may say this, I guess I can on this show, Absolutely. a God-centered program that taught me a little bit about humility, mm-hmm. and uh, that helped enormously. It helped enormously to realize that I was not the center of the universe. Mm. So it, in the end, it resolved itself. It, it, oh, it resolved itself very well. I mean, my, our son continues to be the world's laziest child, but he's also <laughs> very, very sweet and adorable, and we love him to pieces. And I'm a, you know, people say to me, uh, what do you think he'll do for a living when he grows up? And I say, I hope he just stays with us. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he just stays at home and never goes
1: anywhere, because I can't imagine what it's going to be like when he's left the house. I just can't imagine. Ben, the uh, folks who know you and know of your notoriety, uh, I think of you as a very cerebral man, this very intellectual guy. Were you surprised in, in your relationship with Tommy that you turned out to be as much of a mush as you are?
2: No, I thought I would because I was very mush, much of a mush about my dogs. I'm very <laughs> much of a mush about everything. I'm not a very cerebral person, I'm a very emotional person. I cry a lot, really, really a lot. And uh, I'm not at all surprised that, that I became so mushy about Tommy. I mean, Tommy can just say something to me like, these are really good cookies, Daddy, if I make him cookies and it brings tears to my eyes. And uh, the other day he was not feeling well and my wife wanted him to go to school anyway and I said, no, if he's not feeling well, let him sleep till he feels better. And uh, when he felt better a few hours later, he came into my room and he said, thank you for letting me sleep late, Daddy. And I just brought tears to my eyes. I mean, Any,
1: any display of gratitude or affection by him just brings tears to my eyes. Ben, uh, I don't know if our viewers know this or not, but you are yourself the son of a, a noted and impressive father. Uh, now, now Tommy has a, a noted and impressive father. Oh, you're kind to say so. Well, no, I think that's true, but just what would be your learned experience from having had an impressive and important dad in terms of advice you might give Tommy? Like, is he going to be overshadowed by or intimidated by following a man like you? Well, you're asking a very good question. Um... You're asking an extremely good question. That's
2: one of the best questions anyone's ever asked me in an interview, maybe the best. Um, I think I was, uh, well, I was lucky in a sense because my father, while an incredible, unbelievable genius, I mean, just a man of astounding talent in many areas and very well regarded, especially in the fields of economics and finance and advisor to every Republican president since Eisenhower, Uh, He was extremely modest and self-effacing around the house. He never threw his weight around about that. He was a big do-it-yourselfer. And I have many more memories of him making storm windows than of him talking about uh, fiscal policy. Um, And he did not really become nationally famous until I was already in law school. And uh, so it, it it didn't weigh on me the way I think it weighs on Tommy. To, to me, having a very famous and well-connected father was extremely useful. I mean, I can't describe to you how useful it was. First of all, he was full of good advice on every subject. Second, he was uh, incredibly good at finding material for me on any subject. Third, job after job after job that I got when I first got out of school were based on his connections. It was only when I turned to Hollywood that he had absolutely no connections <laughs> at all. And uh, actually, I was able to do better there without that. But but. But I got to a state where I was well-known enough to do well in Hollywood, largely by his connections. Now Tommy has seen and never know a, knew a time when I wasn't famous. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think it does weigh on him. I think in a sense he feels it's very hard to compete with me. I try to tell him all the time, Daddy makes tremendous mistakes. I make far more mistakes than correct judgments. And uh, it is the standard of my life that human beings make mistakes. It's, and uh, and I, I try to tell him I was a very good student, but there are a lot of people who are better students. And uh, I make tremendous mistakes in investments and finance. And uh, he should not ex- not think that I'm perfect by any means. And as, I, as as he always points out, I eat too much. And uh, <laughs> he uh, I, I hope it doesn't overshadow him. I think it does in a way because when I come visit him at school, his friends said, "Oh my God, it's Ben Stein." And uh, I think that is difficult for him but in a way it's good for him i've noticed that he goes into crowds of kids he's never met before when i bring him to places like lacrosse games or soccer games and they all say oh my god is that your father they used to say is that your grandfather now they say is that your father <laughs> and uh he immediately makes friends i know when i took him off to a summer camp a few years ago he immediately got the, he immediately got the nickname bueller and they gave him extra favors because he was my
1: son. So in a way it helps, in a way it hurts. Sorry for such a long No, no, answer. no. That's a great answer, too. I, you mentioned Bueller, so let me pick up on that for a second. You had this very rich, uh, deep and wonderful life, and then uh, you go into this movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and frankly, as you well know, uh, it was, it was a, a mind-blowing thing in terms of notoriety for you. People well, fame, immediately famed. fame, not really notoriety. Notoriety, that's right. right. What did that do for you? How did mm-hmm. that change you,
2: if at all? Well, it was the happiest day of my life, except for the day I married my wife and and adopted Tommy. But um, it uh, changed me in the way I thought, gosh, I'm going to be a star. And I just did this little part. The crowd just loved it, (laughs) applauded like mad. Matthew Broderick came up to me and said, you're fabulous. Have you worked much on Broadway? And I said, this is my first job. And... uh, I thought, I'm going to love being a star. And soon after that, I started getting commercials and then uh, continuing part on The Wonder Years. And little by little, my work shifted from being a screenwriter and novelist to being a personality. My mother used to say, well, your job now is smearing your personality all over the place. (laughs) And it's true, but I have a very interesting personality. And there's lots more of it to smear. And uh, it basically meant that I, moved away from writing, which is a solitary existence, into uh, into acting, which is a much less solitary existence. The big problem has been, there is one gigantic problem, which is that I have, my income has risen quite considerably, and so has my spending. And I have enormous expenditure habits at this point. And if the money stopped coming in, it would be a wrenching readjustment to a more modest way of life. Although. I have to say, I love my dog so much that uh, when I lie, just lie in bed with my dog, I often think if I could just lie in a quiet room with my dog, it wouldn't matter where it was, how big the house was, what kind of a car I had in the driveway. If I just had the dog in me and I knew that my son were
1: well-situated, everything would be all right. I had uh, an opportunity recently to interview someone I know you've met before and that's the uh, singer actor Pat Boone oh yeah great guy and I said to him uh, has it cost you to, uh, to be a voice that's different from the usual voice in the Hollywood community and he said probably it has but he would never have remained silent nonetheless uh, you're another kind of voice too in the Hollywood community huh. uh, the reaction to <laughs> you Ben is <laughs> well they can't believe it I mean they most, <laughs> mostly think I'm kidding I mean, when I first came out there
2: I had only recently left working for Mr. Nixon. So I got teased about that just enormously. I mean, enormously. When I would, I mean, people would say, here's our resident fascist, Ben Stein, which is really out mm-hmm. of control. But uh, in recent years, they've sort of gotten used to me. I mean, they, their jaws drop open when I say that abortion is homicide. And uh, when I'm on a talk show, if I say a woman's right to choose... Is equivalent to a woman's right to murder. Um, boy, they get very mad at me. I mean, they're mad at me. Doesn't really start to describe it. I mean, go crazy is the right way to put it. They go crazy. But you know, uh, that's who I am. That's what I believe in. And uh, I'm. I will hate. I would hate if I lost my job because of it. I would hate it because I love doing being a TV star, even a little teeny cable TV star. But uh, you have to be who you are.
1: What's the background of the point of view, though, Ben? Of being right to
2: life? Yeah. Well, I wasn't always right to life. I mean, when I was in college and law school, I just like everybody else, thought that the right to life was a ridiculous, silly idea. Um, But, um, well, it came about through, A, I saw women who were pregnant who were playing Mozart to their babies, and yet were in the National Abortion Rights Action League, and I used to say to them, if you think it's a baby you can appreciate mozart how can you then also say it's a massive fetal tissue of no moral value when you abort it so that was one. Second, i saw that when people in the midst of committing a crime shot a pregnant woman and killed the baby they were charged with homicide and i thought well then why isn't the abortionist charged with homicide and third when we adopted our son i thought my god this ineffably beautiful spirit could have just been ground up in the most painful, sadistic way, uh, thank God his mother chose life and how I wish that all mothers chose life. I, I'm very fascinated. I'm not, it seems to me our point of view is self-evident. I to, it doesn't seem to me you can reach any other point of view. The point of view that uh, children are allowed to be aborted and murdered at the will of uh, anybody who feels like doing it, uh, that is to me extremely puzzling. I understand that women do not want to be burdened by having babies and having to care for them if they don't want to, but that's where there's adoption. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so many people out there waiting to adopt. I do think it is time for a national pro-adoption, pro-life policy with major tax breaks for adoptive parents, major federal government support of single mothers who who uh, choose to have their babies. I mean, I think we should really be putting our money where our mouth is. I think it's wrong to tell the, a woman who's in torment about being pregnant when she doesn't, doesn't want to be, just go ahead and be brave
1: and do it. If we really care about life, we've got to back it up. good friend of mine, Rabbi Nathaniel Schwartz, we would enter into these discussions, and I'd say I, I just don't always understand why in the Jewish community there isn't a deep embrace of the right to life and why. And he would say to me, well, life is very precious in the Jewish community. But remember, we've suffered throughout our history by a lack of freedom, so freedom is more important even than the right to life. Uh, I don't buy it. I I'm, okay. I'm sure he told it to you sincerely, but he's also mistaken because
2: in the or- among Orthodox Jews, right to life is a strict commandment. So it's only among the conservative and reformed Jews that, that, is, that the right to life is uh, not accepted and not embraced. And uh, you know, I when, when I was a younger person and people would compare the abortion holocaust with the Jewish holocaust, I would think that's an outrageous comparison. But the more I think of it, the more I think there are a lot of similarities. And, uh, I mean, to the Germans, a Jew was not human. Mm-hmm. If you killed him, the German didn't feel any pain. And uh, the Nazi, I should say, since there are many fine Germans. Um, the, uh, the, uh, to, the, to the Soviet Bolshevik, uh, their enemies were not human. They they didn't care if they were killed. And to the people who are on the pro-abortion side of the issue, babies are not human. I mean, if they, what I often think is, if some national TV network would show an abortion from the uterus, show the baby being ground up, show the baby being asphyxiated or poisoned, and do that every night for a week, the
1: debate would be over. You know, as you speak bluntly about it, Ben, I'm reminded uh, we've met at, at uh, Pro-Life Functions and my usual date is the wonderful actress Patricia Neal. But yes. The reason she goes is because she, through Gary Cooper, became pregnant and had an abortion herself and regrets it now for 40 years. But she says even her, her, her friends in the pro-choice community say, we're very sorry that happened to you, but just shh, be quiet. We don't need to hear it. Are you told to shh, just be quiet? People used to tell me that at first and I would just laugh
2: at them so they don't even bother saying it anymore. The only time... uh, Recently I was doing a show, a charity event, and I said, if I won the the money, I would give it to Right to Life. And the sponsors of the event said, don't ever mention that again. And I said, I'll I'll mention it if I feel like mentioning it. So
1: So you don't really much care.
2: Oh, I care. I like to be liked. I want to be liked. Everybody wants to be liked. Uh, I mean, the people... I work with at uh, the network and at the production company, they're pretty much uniformly not right to life. And I want them to be my friends, but I want them to understand that this is a deep moral issue with me. I mean, Mm -hmm. even my father, with whom I agreed about almost everything, disagreed with me about this. And uh, I, I think he was mistaken. I mean, he was a genius. He was a wonderful human being a really wonderful human being, but he did not agree with me about this. And
1: uh, I think had he lived longer, I might have been able to persuade him to change his mind, (laughs) or maybe not. Okay. Let's take a step back to those early days when you were speechwriting for President Nixon. Uh, I guess with time and some vilification in popular media, he's almost not a person to a lot of folks. So take us back there. The man Richard Nixon, the person, any particular insights into the kind of fellow he was? Well, lonely,
2: he was a lonely, solitary person trying to be a gregarious, friendly, open, outgoing person, incredibly smart, painfully sensitive, um, brilliantly committed to peace. I mean, it's funny, um, years ago when I worked for Mr. Nixon, Senator Carl Curtis of Nebraska, who I believe was also a great friend of life, Mm -hmm. said, no matter what, even if he was the only vote in the Senate, he would never turn his back on Richard Nixon, the peacemaker. And I think the great wish of Mr. Nixon was to find peace within himself and also to express that in peace on earth. And he created the framework for the end of the Cold War, for the end of the Vietnam War, for the opening to China. which has left us with a global balance such that war has become, large-scale war has become pretty much unthinkable. And uh, he left us, he used to say that he hoped his legacy would be a generation of peace. And I believe he's left us more than a generation of peace. And uh, it's funny because now when people say, say, why don't you join in in criticizing Nixon, I say
1: what Carl Curtis said, I will never turn my back on Richard Nixon, the peacemaker. Okay. Let's come to a a more recent presidency. Do you get bothered or annoyed at all by the fact that it seems we're at a point where uh, no matter what you do in public life seems to be widely acceptable so that uh, there were no limits, it seemed, with President Clinton in terms of how much he could do and we'd forgive him and take him back and in fact seem to make him more popular in some ways. Any view of that? I don't blame Clinton for having sex with the intern. People are lonely and she
2: was available. I blame him for that lying to us, and what I blame more than anything else, and I don't even blame him for that, because men lie when they're caught having sex with people who are not, women or not their wives. What I blame him for is the smear campaign he launched against his enemies. Having his thugs say that Henry Hyde should be stoned to death. Now here's Henry Hyde, one of the most gentle, decent, God-fearing men in the US government saying he should be stoned because he wants to bring justice to the White House. That was outrageous. To unleash some of the very tough
1: smear artists of the Clinton side, that was just outrageous. With the uh, pretty strong points of view you have and also a commitment to a change of policy for the good, any temptation for yourself to go into elective office, Ben? I don't like working
2: in government. I don't like being in committees. I do like campaigning. I love meeting people. I love going out and speaking and meeting people. I travel a lot, speaking a really lot. I love meeting the ordinary American. I love speaking in the Midwest, in the South, in the uh, Northwestern U.S., anywhere. I just love meeting the ordinary American. I was just speaking two nights ago in Las Vegas to a very, very wonderful group of people, and they were so nice. I mean, they're just. Butter wouldn't melt in their mouth. They were so sweet and nice, and I feel this everywhere I go. I mean, I'm just mm-hmm. awed by the kindness and decency of the ordinary American. Uh, Jimmy Jimmy Carter used to say, "I want to give you a government that's as good as America, the American people." And I don't think he did, but he, but I think he was right. The the ordinary citizen, out there outside the Beltway, outside the New York Metroplex, outside Hollywood, is just the kindest, nicest person. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Jew, Gentile, everywhere. They're incredibly nice people. The the ordinary heartland American is
1: just the kindest person there's ever been in the history of the world. In my final moments, Ben, and this may give some reflection as to your own spiritual journey in life, but given the opportunity before you go home to God to ask the maker of us all any particular question, is there anything you'd most be pressed to ask? I would ask why he
2: let uh, so many suffer in the Holocaust and other cruel acts of man versus man and why he, uh, why he let abortion go on so long. But uh, you know, Robert E. Lee, who is one of my idols, said a very smart thing about that. He said, we have a lot of questions
1: and thy will be done I ought to answer them all. And And if today this were the end of the earthly journey for you, do you have any clue at all ben as to what you'd like you, yourself to be remembered for your legacy hmm, i think a friend of life would be a good one I, I will tell you though
2: i think when i see my when i see my son smiling at me and playing his harmonica and giggling and he sees me giggling as he plays his harmonica i think i'm in heaven already and i think to be with your family and those you love smiling in peacetime in america that's paradise already I, I often i often think maybe i've already died and am already in heaven
1: i'd like to thank ben stein for being with us on christopher close-up you know him from his television show and his writings and all the other ways in which he is famous not necessarily notorious thanks right. for the distinction You're welcome. but i i appreciate more that today he shared with us something of who the man is his beliefs his convictions and his loves especially the passion he has for life and the passion he has for the people who make up his family and friends. I thank Ben for being with us and you for watching.
0: I want to thank our friends at Christopher Close-Up for sharing with us this wonderful program in which we got to interview the wonderful commentator, Ben Stein. He has such wisdom. It was an honor and a privilege to interview him years ago, and I wanted to share that Christopher Close-Up moment with you on Personally Speaking. I'm Monsignor General Losanti. Thank you for being with us. We'll see you next time on Personally Speaking.